we saw another bear come out and really like chase the other bear out of his territory. You see the alpha predator there. Uh, how do you gauge, you know, what to do? Looking at the reactions of your group, knowing the group, looking at the reactions of the bear. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hello there, Lead the Team. You're going to want to tune in to this one today. I've got a fun one with Marith Griffith, who is an Alaskan-based wilderness guide. And by the way, we're going to be talking about some personal experiences I had with Marith and my family because she guided our family on a tremendously fun and awesome Alaskan adventure. And we're delighted to have her on the show today. And a little bit more about Marith. She has worked on expedition cruise ships since 2015, leading adventurous souls on epic quest to seek out glaciers, bears, and whales in the wilds of coastal Alaska and beyond. Now, in her 15 years as an Alaskan naturalist, she's worked for remote lodges inside Kenai Fjords National Park, led winter sea kayaking trips in Alaskan fjords, and worked as a tour guide for a marine mammal rehabilitation center. Now, outside of Alaska, Marath has also guided in Antarctica, Mexico, Hawaii, and Northern Ireland, where her nearest neighbors included 2,000 puffins and the ghost of a spectral black horse. Now, Marath graduated with a degree in music, interestingly, from Smith College and worked as a theatrical sound technician on the East Coast for two years before returning to Alaska for good. And she holds certifications as a wilderness first responder, ACA coastal kayak guide, and as a Coast Guard licensed boat captain. And Merith also plays violin and guitar, and her writing has been published in literary journals and through Parvis Press. And when she's not in the field, she lives off the grid in a cabin surrounded by blueberry bushes in the woods outside of Seward, Alaska. Merith, welcome to Lead the Team. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Now, for the listeners, we were just recapping. Recounting one of the days that Marath was taking us out on what we call a day long uh, yak and whack. Will you explain what a yak and whack happens to be? Absolutely. It's basically a full day venture leaving the mothership in kayaks. So that's the yak part, kayaking out to explore whatever bay we've anchored in. And going ashore for a lunch spot, so paddling for a couple of hours, getting ashore. And then the bushwhack portion is exploring on land in wilderness Alaska in an area where there's not any maintained trails. So a lot of that is following natural features, a little bit of wilderness navigation, possibly stumbling onto a game trail or two, uh, making your way back to the boats, and then uh, paddling home. So that's normally a, a full day out in the field. It's a blast. It is an absolute blast. Now, for people, you know, Mara's kind of throwing it out there like, hey, this is just easy stuff. No, this is thick wilderness. And to her point, there is no trail. 
And so you've got all these people out there um, on the trail with you that don't have very much experience navigating the Alaskan bush. So what are the essential? All right. How do you handle the challenge of leading people through such very, uh, through such varied skill and knowledgeable level? So the people are coming out there. Some may have been hiking and going through the bush and kayaking for years. Some, this might be their first time and you're leading them through the rugged wilderness. How do you handle that? A lot of that comes down to having really good lines of communication with the group and also having a group that trusts that you can pull off and and lead everybody through what you're proposing. So, you know, it's it's great that on the ship that we were on, it's a, a full week together that everybody has. You get to know each other. Uh, it's a, kind of a longer process of sort of building that, that when we hop into the kayaks and paddle away from the mothership, that as a guide, I'm not an unknown quantity at that point. You know, ideally, we've had a few days together. And, mm-hmm. you know, for a lot of stuff with this company, um, the boat that I work for, Uncruise Adventures, we do get a lot of repeat guests. That's great. Also, that that process of building trust kind of starts even before our clients mm. get on board. You know, if they've had okay. good experiences with our booking people, with our, you know, even the people greeting them at the airport, we're kind of laying the groundwork that, yes, everybody in this network that's banding together to get you out in the Alaskan wilderness, we know our stuff, we're competent in what we're doing. And, you know, that that kind of comes down to that when we are in the woods, even if, you know, I haven't been on a tour with these particular people before, that they've kind of got a handle on what to expect. And then it's just a lot of checking in with people, make sure that, making sure that people are doing okay, taking breaks. You know, if it does look like some folks are struggling a little bit or moving a little slower, change the focus, you know, slow down, find something interesting to talk about. Uh, get people checking out edible plants, you know, feeding people spruce chips, um, <laughs> just being willing to change things up on the fly if what you're doing initially isn't necessarily working for the whole group. Gotcha. So there's like a, a little bit of a diversion tactic. Hey, if we all can't go hardcore into the into the woods, even when we started, there are other things you can bring people's attention to. So it's not just all about the physical side of handling it. Yeah, or just changing the focus. You know, one of the the more powerful things you can do sometimes is just to to have a moment of silence out there. You know, Tell just moving from yeah, a physical strenuous activity to something that's just a little bit more contemplative and really putting yourself in a wild environment sort of mentally as well as physically mm. in a way that people don't necessarily always think to do wow and by the way i appreciate your edible plant knowledge that you bestowed upon us you talked about the spruce tips those are the ones that taste like an ipa right am i right yeah they're used in brewing a lot yeah (laughs) they're used in brewing a lot up in alaska when you go make sure to have an ipa with spruce tips Uh, but you can taste the spruce tips while you're walking it I believe you handed us some or pointed them out and, and uh, we tried a few up there. 
Um, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and I really like how you, and I'm remembering back. Yeah. Shifting. It's not always about experiencing the wilderness from a physical standpoint It's putting yourself in that mental place to really appreciate what's going on. And, uh, yeah. Well, so thinking about different varieties of people that you have on your excursions, uh, keeping a positive mental attitude was emphasized. And in fact, first night that we were with you and your, and your group, people were talking about this being a really important thing for all of the guests to be keeping in mind. What do you do when someone's struggling to keep a positive mental attitude and it might be affecting others in the group? Yeah. And a lot of the time that comes down to, you know, Maslow's hierarchy is, is there a physical thing going on? Is this person cold? Um, if it's a young child, very often you can turn things around by just giving them a snack. Sometimes that works for grownups too. You know, just, yeah, just something to kind of, you know, raise the energy level a little bit, um, you know, see how they're doing. Um, sometimes it's, it's actually, um, maybe somebody is a little anxious about something like, Mm. Uh, bears can be often uh, sort of a focus of people's anxieties about going into the woods. And yes. there's, yeah, there's ways that you can, you know, kind of address this. It's like, well, okay, you know, we're, we're looking at this meadow. I'm not really seeing any signs that a bears have been here recently. There's not any scat or, you know, just talk about what, you know, what we're seeing, what we would do if we would encounter a bear, which normally just makes a noise, let the bear know we're around. Uh, so sometimes it's it's a matter of of physical comfort. Sometimes it's a matter of like let's talk a little bit about what what you're feeling uncomfortable about and see if that kind of clarifies things. Sometimes, honestly, if I'm taking somebody in, you know, out, sometimes the experience can be a little bit much. And uh, if we're at kind of the higher levels of Maslow's hierarchy, where you know maybe you're you were expecting to see, you know, whales cavorting and bears, you know, playing with each other on the beach. And instead we're, we're looking at, you know, otter tracks and flowers and maybe that's not quite what you envisioned. Yes. You know, sometimes that's just an, an expectations gap that is sort of on that, that person to, to bridge. And I do the best I can to let what we are looking at kind of speak for itself and you can find really interesting things to talk about just walking through a meadow just looking at plants Mm. looking for animal sign and you know it's kind of on me as a guide that when we're not seeing bears and whales and the charismatic megafauna that people come here wanting to see that we're still having a good time and learning and interacting with alaska even if it's you know, showpiece animals aren't necessarily right there in front of us oh. at that time. So good. And you've got to, and, and you were really great at that. I really felt like you helped us appreciate the nature and the wildness that we're in. And yes, we saw bears and we'll maybe talk about that in a second, but wow. Appreciating floor, the fauna, the tracks. And I guess as a guy, you've got to really be observant for all that, not just the people you're guiding, but paying attention to what you can draw people's attention to and make it fascinating. And you did, I mean, you made it fat, you made it the smallest plants. Interesting. <laughs> I think a lot of people are probably would just would have tromped on through if I hadn't paid attention and helped us appreciate that. 
I can see that being a vital skill uh, for a guy. Now, when we were there, kind of on this question, uh, we had gone on this on, on a yak and whack, and we pulled into an estuary. And my daughter, uh, who's 12, and I, she was in the back. I was in the front because she wanted to control the boat and everything, or uh, control the kayak. And we saw one bear, and there were some kayaks in front of us, of so just a couple. And I instantly was like wanted to get closer. And she instantly started paddling backwards. And she's like, no, daddy, we're not going to do that. And then we saw another bear come out and really like chase the other bear out of his territory or something on those lines. Um, we felt somewhat close. I mean, I, I felt like we were not close enough for me, but maybe I was a little crazy that time, but we felt close. And she was like, you know, dad, you know, we're, we're in an estuary and the water's not deep. The bears could run at us or something like that. How do you gauge when you're in a group of people, of different skill levels, you see the alpha predator there. Uh, how do you gauge, you know, what to do in those moments? A lot of it is looking at the reactions of your group, knowing the group, looking at the reactions of the bear and knowing what that's telling you. Hmm. And it's really often when you're, you know, on land and seeing bears that you will have like what you described, the people in the group that want to get closer and the people in the group that immediately want to get further away. And it's not always that you have them in the same kayak, like in your situation. <laughs> but yeah, that is, um, that's very much a factor. And a lot of, you know, when we the the safety talk that we do at the beginning of the week when we talk about bears, you know, first thing we're going to do if we see one is get together in a group and watch that bear. And part of that is just, you know, giving the guide a moment to figure out the situation. Like, is there anybody in the group that's really, you know, working closer than they should be? Is there anyone in the group mm -hmm. that is panicking or really needs to be shown that this is not a frightening situation. What is the bear doing? Are they just eating grass? Uh, in that situation, the bears were clearly more concerned with each other. And that was kind of the behavior that was playing out. But obviously, any situation where a bear already has something going on that's stressing it out, we don't necessarily want to add to that. And that was a big factor in what I chose to do in that situation was basically the kayak stopped where we were and allowed the current to kind of move the group backwards. Yes. And it's, it's yeah, always that. Right. Yes. And it's always, you know, anytime we get a, a group on shore with a bear, there's, there's always, I'm always looking at like, well, how do I keep this safe, but also maximize viewing opportunity. There's always that calculation of, mm. you know, how can we arrange the group so that, we're getting a view, not stressing out the bears. You know, with this situation, they were they were already enough. There was enough agitation going on between the two of them that that it wouldn't have been a safe or reasonable thing to get close. And again, as you all observed, the water was quite shallow where we were. It was not like that was yes. going to be any barrier. Yes. Um, yeah, but it's kind of making those calls and again having enough group cohesion that. And we, we did have um, one of the boats that was up close to me was asking if we could paddle closer. And, oh. you know, I told him, well, no, but we're going to sit okay. here and watch from this distance. 
Okay. And it's getting in that situation where you do have to tell a client no is when that's the biggest test of the trust that the group is putting in me and the expertise that I have is that you have to tell a client something they don't necessarily want to hear, but they need to go along with it anyway. And if you have you know, established that you've got the expertise in the situation, that they're they're right in kind of trusting my read, then then they'll go along with it. And yes. when you get a situation where that's not the case, that is probably, you know, the the bigger challenges or the bigger, I would say, failures even in leading a group is uh, mm-hmm. where you have a guest that that does not necessarily respect the no's. Which which must happen sometimes. Someone's just gonna go rogue and say, hey, I want to get closer. It does happen. Um, it's it's very infrequent. I can only think of maybe two instances that stand out in like 15 years of guiding. Um, but it's it's a big problem for the group dynamics, not only because that person is putting themselves in an unsafe situation and potentially the rest of the group or me if I have to go after them, oh. but when they do yeah. eventually comes back, it it kind of ruins the the group dynamic for everybody else because you've got the one person who went rogue and they're the bad clients and everybody else is the good clients and it's a fracture that doesn't necessarily heal itself very well over the rest of the trip. Ah uh, yeah, you're known as that the person one... who put us all at risk. Yeah. 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 And what was the situation, the other two two or three situations, were they related to bears or were they related to other wildlife? Uh, so one that stands out was was actually with a glacier in Kenai Fjords National Park. Yeah. And we were up to the side of the glacier. It was an area where you could actually go up and touch it pretty safely because the glacier was gently sloped. There was nothing yes. overhanging your head. We weren't under rock falls. And uh, we had one woman who wanted to actually go and walk on top of it, which was not something we we did for safety reasons. And also we didn't bring crampons or gear, Um, but she chose to do that and ended up in a spot where if she had fallen and slid on the ice, she would have gone over a 90 foot cliff. Yeah. So, you know, there's very compelling safety reasons why I asked people not to go up there. And after that incident, I actually stopped taking groups to that area of the glacier because I thought that that slope was just too much of a temptation. And if I had, you know, other people that reacted as this particular client did, it, it could have been a really nasty situation. So not just a, a change for that group, but this particular interesting thing that other groups I took out that summer, I deliberately did not show them because of that one experience. Yeah. It's just- the temptation is there. Uh, and you may think that the glacier, surely, you know, what, what are the odds of the glacier moving while I'm here? But when we were out with you in Glacier National, part of a glacier calved right in front of us. And the only person that actually saw it was Archer. Uh, but we all heard it like, you know, thunder, I guess a few seconds after it, after it went off. So, and it was a big chunk. Uh, Yeah, that was a very good sized calving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Want to boost your productivity and decision making? 
Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. What's the best advice you've received when you were starting out as a guy back in yonder year? I guess, what, 15 years ago? Yes. And this was my first summer guiding was in Northern Ireland. I was at a seabird colony there. And <laughs> one of the, wow. the rangers at the seabird colony, and we were basically there to show people breeding puffins. This was a really remote part of Northern Ireland. So to get there, people had to come on a ferry. They were hiking across the island or taking a shuttle bus partway to get to us. But it was it was kind of a lot of travel logistics, even just to show up at this visitor center's front door. You know, there wasn't a road that went out to us. People were literally walking across a nature reserve. And the advice I got from one of the wardens who lived on the island, had been there for a really long time, had to do with how people tell stories and how we tell stories about what has happened in our lives. And what he told me was. You know, when when somebody is going out to a vacation destination or wherever and things kind of happen exactly as they planned, that doesn't always necessarily make a very interesting story. Mm. And that's not really the kind of story that people like to tell when they come home. The, the stories that more often get repeated are when, when things go wrong and, you know, they lost my luggage and it rained all day and we had to, you know, the boat broke down, but we got to this island anyway, and we, you know, trekked for an hour to get to this spot, and then we saw the puffins. And, you know, the stories that, that most people tell kind of have that contour. It's that things things go bad initially, and then something happens that kind of turns the whole thing around. And kind of what people are describing are, are novels. Like, that's the outline for the hero's journey, but um, that's yes. also how people talk about their vacations. So his point with all of that is if you get somebody showing up to the reserve that is obviously had some interesting stories getting there, look for that pivot, you know, look for the way to make these birds that are hanging out here on this cliff worth all of the trouble that they went to. And then you're giving somebody a story that they might be repeating for years. Wow. I love that. And I do, you know what? I can relate to that on our Alaskan adventure. Our roughest day, uh, our most physical uh, yak and whack was was not, it was a bear. We didn't see a bear, but we on that one, but it was super intense. Uh, and man, we still talk about that and how much Devil's Club. And if y'all, if you ever heard about Devil's Club, it's a thorny plant. That seems to grow everywhere <laughs> they, that you want to put your hands in Alaska going through the woods. And yeah, and uh, it was such an adventure just to get through that. And I love what you said too about, hey, as a guide, it's your responsibility to tell the story, to make it, to help give them, help present the magic to them. So that and they could be telling this story for years, uh, helping them process it and craft it. An and I'm glad you mentioned the hero's journey. Uh, you read Joseph Campbell and, uh, the, the hero's journey structure. Is that. Yes. Well, I, I write fantasy novels in my spare time actually. So I yeah, that. I have, 
studied a little bit about how how stories come together and it's an interest also that crosses over to guiding you know really well a lot of what i'm doing when i'm out there is is telling stories and explaining you know the story that you can find in a meadow where a bear has been digging up chocolate lily roots to eat or the tracks on a riverbed those are little snippets of stories if you have the eyes to to kind of see what's going on. And it's my job to explain that to people that maybe haven't seen that before. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I think a lot of people probably miss the value in that. And probably a lot of guides do too. And so this is, this is a skill that I think we all need in life, every leader, but especially if you're a wilderness guide. Oh man. So, so good. So I imagine that you've had to learn some lessons the hard way. Uh, what's a story that illustrates that as a guide? Oh, give me a sec here. So probably the hardest lesson for for my career was learning not to be afraid of my own mistakes or my own mm-hmm. mishaps. And a lot of that comes down to the way clients might perceive something happening on a trip would be very different from the way I might perceive it. Hmm. And there's there's a good story that kind of goes along with this. When I was guiding in Kenai Fjords, one of our full day trips was going on to this very flat glacial moraine. Um, so really, really flat beach in an area with 12 to 15 foot tides and no trees on it anywhere. So if we were getting on this beach for a lunch stop and a hike while the tide was coming up, it was always the question of, well, how far do I make my Ooh. clients drag the boat up? Um, you have to build a rock anchor because there's nothing else to tie to. So you're tying a rope around a bigger rock and then putting other rocks on top. You kind of make a cairn to make to hold the whole thing wow. in place Okay. so that if you guess the tide wrong and the boats are floating when you come back, they won't actually have gone anywhere. They're still anchored to something. And I think everybody that has worked out there or guided on that area has had the day when you take a little longer on the hike than you think, or you just misjudge how quickly the water's coming in. You get back to the beach and your kayaks are floating in the water 30 yards away and your rock (laughs) anchor is underwater. Uh And sometimes you can wade out and get it. Um, I have on one occasion stripped down to my long underwear and I had to go swimming to get that rope back. Wow. (laughs) And, you know, while I might be looking at that and think, oh, I screwed this up. I should have, you know, drugged the kayaks another 20 feet. What the guests are thinking is, man, my wilderness guide is so awesome. She stripped down to her underwear and was out there swimming to get our boats back. This is the greatest thing ever. You know, it's what I see as a mistake. Yeah, it took a little while to figure out that that's, it's not necessarily a mistake. It's just another piece of the puzzle. It's the challenge that I need to figure out. But if I do it in a way that at the end of the day, all the clients are still having fun, you know, still, still in a safe situation, it's another part of the story. And it's something that they're probably going to remember for longer than if we just rolled back to the boats and the boats were just right there on the beach. Oh, this interview is coming together for me in so many interesting ways with, with, with those stories about how we look at our mistakes, 
how we craft the narratives of our lives and our experiences, our vacations and leaders uh, like yourself have a huge role in that, helping people craft the narrative and then craft one that works for you too, an empowering and enjoyable and memorable way. Uh, man, what, what a cool story there. And I can see people today being like, yeah, we had that one guide up in Alaska. The water was freezing. Meredith swam out and got it done for us. That's toughness. That's the kind of guide I want. Oh, so sort of rewinding your career, I got a couple more questions for you. But I mean, why why a wilderness guy? Why? Well, when I first came up to Alaska, I was working for an aquarium with the Marine Mammal Rehabilitation Program and working as a deckhand as well. So it was for me, the attraction was always the animals. I was definitely one of those people where I wanted to go out and see whales and see the seals. And after a couple of summers of working, you know, basically inside boats and in buildings, I, that wasn't enough for me. I wanted to a job that kind of brought me a little bit closer, not just to the animals, but to the environment that they were living in. So I, started getting some certifications and I was lucky enough that the Kenai Fjords Glacier Lodge hired me to be a kayak guide, which I had never done before, uh, just on the basis of the fact that I knew the ecology of the area really well and they were willing to train me on the hard skills, on, you know, kayaks, and they put me through a week-long course to do that and kind of started out from there. And you just got hooked after that. Yeah. I uh, I lived at that lodge for five summers. It was probably one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I liken it to living in Narnia. I mean, I was <laughs> there in a wall awesome. tent. Um, we had, you know, you could hear the sea otters uh, calling to their pups in the lagoon at night. We had black bears that would come through camp on a pretty regular basis. We're fairly tolerant of the people there. We had three different tidewater glaciers that you could kayak to from the lodge itself. I mean, it was everything that you could find in coastal Alaska was somewhere within seven or eight miles of that property. It was, it was fantastic. Wow. And now, as you say in your, in your bio here, you live off the grid. What have the benefits been of, of living off the grid? Well, that was a choice that mainly came about because I live outside of a popular tourist destination and like everywhere else, it is difficult to find affordable housing. <laughs> um, okay. So I was, yeah. my, my financial situation was I was looking for, um, let's say to kind of the shack end. If you've got like shack to like vacation dream home, yes. I was, I was very much on the, okay. um, <laughs> so I ended up buying a property on one anchor that had been uh, built by a, the son of a Swedish master carpenter. So he was not a professional himself, but he sure knew what he was doing. You can kind of see the yeah, the woodwork behind me. It looks really cool. Yeah. Um, he was running the whole yeah. thing off a generator. Um, I have been able to put it on the mains electricity since I bought it, but I still don't have running water here and I still use an outhouse. And I'm wow. quite happy wow. with that. <laughs> are you as happy just, with it in January as you are? In the month of June? You know, there's some differences. <laughs> Honestly, the worst thing about having an outhouse in the winter is shoveling the path to it. 
that's that's a well, lot of extra yards of snow that needs to get moved. Well, and how much snow roughly do you get up there? Uh, um, last winter, um, you could not see out the windows on the side of the cabin because the the snow would come up that far from where it fell off the roof. So it was like wow. five feet in the yard, and then eight or nine feet where the roof shed snow. Holy smokes! Yeah, shoveling that you want to keep that shoveled down your path to the outhouse, no doubt. Uh, wow, that's that's cool. You might be my first guest that has had that challenge. Uh, Meredith, I just want to say thank you for joining me today. I mean, this has been so much fun. And for the listeners, I want to ask you for your parting thought here in a second. But but for the listeners, we had a great experience with, with Meredith and the other guides uh, up and on cruise. And I'm telling you, it's an adventure that you will not forget. And it was very active. And lots of fun. And we even had some relaxing time too. But I'd, I'd recommend it pretty much for anybody that, that that's up for a good adventure. Uh, Merith, a couple things. Uh, maybe your parting thought. And if they want to get in touch with you or check out some of your writing, where should they go? Um, for me, I've got an author Facebook page, which is probably the best place to uh look up what i'm doing so maris okay. griffith author on facebook put down the link um, there, okay yep i uh, also have a, a occasionally updated website but probably facebook is the best place for uh for folks to find me all right and what's your party thought for our, our listeners today i guess i'll share one other thing that I learned from the Argentinian skiff driver who taught me how to drive in Antarctica was the advice. Remember in some situations that if you're having fun, your passengers are probably terrified <laughs> just as far as driving in big, uh, big sea conditions. <laughs> it's a good thing to keep in mind. Um, and I also, I will, I will tell clients that line even if it's not necessarily true for me, I don't particularly enjoy driving in big waves, but it's also a way that, you know, humor can be such a great way to kind of break up tension. You pull out that quote and it, you know, lets people, it acknowledges that maybe the sea conditions have changed, but also in a way that lets people know, like, you can still have fun in big waves, but, you know, if people are feeling anxious, it's also, giving space to that feeling in kind of a playful way. So I'm just a big fan of any, any kind of any sort of tension comes up, find a way to break it with a joke or with something like that uh, well, can, can do a whole yes. lot for. Have a way yeah, to for, have uh, some humor. Yeah. Great, yes, exactly. great advice for everybody out there. Mira, thanks for coming on today. Thank you. It's been lovely. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. 
Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.